Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where we talk about all kinds of films, from the highfalutin to the mind pollutant. Well done. Thank you. That, that, that was a listener suggestion. Trying it on for size. Gonna walk around in those shoes for a little while. Put it on in the store. Take a few yeah. steps. See if they, see if they, uh, see if they can be enjoyed and have uh, fun. What, what do you, what do you do with shoes? You break them in. <laughs> break in shoes. Did, did you ever buy shoes at the local camping store? There was a camping store. It was. It was Adventure sixteen. A sixteen as this camping outlet near uh, I, near our apartments. I bought boots and, uh, there once. Actually, um, yeah. I never ever in my whole life needed winter gear. But then I had to go cover Sundance all of a sudden, like really last minute. And I was like, oh, I should probably get like a coat or something. Like a down jacket or something really yeah. warm. So I had, I got a jacket, gloves, some long underwear and some boots. Nice. And like a couple of, so they, they decked me out for winter. Yeah, yeah. They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll cover. But uh, they're so, uh, they take their boot sails, like their hiking boot sails so seriously. Mm. They had like various textures you could walk on in the store, oh. like slopes and rocks and stuff. It was a big deal. It was, like this it was a entire, big like, store, little... actually. Oh, yeah, it was it huge. Was, yeah, it was very... Yeah, and, and now it's gone. Yeah, it died out right before COVID, actually. I, yeah. We can't say that COVID took it out. It was yeah. just rent. And they still rent had, in L.A. They still have deposit I put down for a gift for you. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they like just this, kept it. Like the special Swiss Army knife. Yeah, I guess it just went into the went into the vault. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, it's a, so I hope some worker made off with it and bought yeah. themselves a nice dinner. I hope so, too. Anyway, this week, Uncritically Acclaimed, you're reviewing a whole bunch of new movies, including The Mitchells versus The Machines, Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, which is a shame. I feel like is we should he? all have remorse. Yeah, but anyway. uh, The Human Voice, Berlin Alexander Platz, and on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where we review older movies that one or both of us haven't seen before, in addition to our new releases, since we're watching everything on streaming devices anyway. Uh, we are talking about Ken Russell's classic and extremely controversial film, The Devils. But before we get into any of that, uh, we need to talk about a, a, a really amazing actor who passed away yeah. this last week. A truly incredible talent and a, a, a person who broke into the film industry. She'd been working as a hard, like, been working as a character actor for many years, but didn't get her breakout role until I think she was in her 50s. Uh, yeah, she, uh, appeared in a certain film, in certain films throughout the seventies. And mm. indeed we saw one of them as part of the streaming club recently, Brian De Palma's sisters. Yeah. She played where, a cake maker. Yeah. She, she was a work. She was like worker in bakery. And yeah. even then she stood out and because she's played by the wonderful Olympia Dukakis, uh, you think that the role is going to be like much more significant to the story. No, she's mm. just woman in bakery. Yeah. That's what she was doing. She'd been in like very small roles since the early 60s. And every time she's in it, she's even got like a very small role in the original Death Wish. Yeah, she's a she, cop. Yeah, she's a cop. She's she's a she's got the blue uniform on and everything. She's at the police station. I honestly don't recall if she even leaves the building over the course of the film, but she always just stands out as like, you know, there's a whole lot of actors who are given very little to do in this in any movie, really, unless it's like a two-hander or something. But like every once in a while, you see someone just sort of stand out and be like, "That actor is interesting. What are they up to? And can we put them in more things?" Yeah. And that was Olympia Dukakis for many years until uh, in the mid '80s, she got cast in the absolutely wonderful romantic comedy, which we've also covered on the Streaming Club, Moonstruck. Mm-hmm. 
which won multiple Academy Awards, including um, including one for her, including one for Olympia Dukakis, mm-hmm. and yeah, and, and as well as she should be, she played uh, Cher's mother. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, I do highly recommend it. Cher plays a woman who is engaged to be married to Danny Aiello in the New York, mm-hmm. and it's a rather boring relationship, but she wants it that way. Like she wants like security comfort. She's not interested in passion. She just wants to just have her life in order. And then she, and Danielle is such a sweet guy. Oh, and he's sweet. There's nothing wrong with him. He's just kind of dull. And, uh, so, but Danny Aiello says, Hey, listen, I've got to go away on a business trip. I'm estranged from my brother, but I would like him to be at my wedding. Would you please contact him for me? And she does, only to find that he's played by Nicolas Cage in pure Cage mode. Like, he, he's really swinging for the walls. From scene um, one. Like, she meets him, he's and like he's to- in, like, this... To- total... He's in this, like, basement oven-laden room. It's not even a kitchen. It's a bakery. It's the basement yeah. of a bakery with, like, you know, the big wood fire stove and everything like that. But it's shot it like a medieval like dungeon. Hell, yeah. Yeah. And he shows up, and he's in there, and he's all burly and brusque and covered in sweat. And he has, he's missing a hand. He has and a he wooden has a, hand. He's yeah. got a giant monologue about how I lost my hand! And meanwhile, Olympia Dukakis is there the whole time trying to tell Cher. It's like, listen, love is overrated. Love complicates everything. You don't want to be in love. You just want to be pleasant. Mm. She has a great scene. Oh, who she have a scene with at the end of that movie where um, she's uh, there's like a there's like a guy oh, who's like the, a perf- the, yeah, it's the um, sort of lecherous married. Yeah, Olympia Dukakis finds out that her husband has been cheating on her, and she doesn't know what to do about it. And she ends. Oh, it's John Mahoney. That's right. Who also like broke into the film world rather late in his life. And mm. uh, she ends up seeing this guy at a restaurant who's in the restaurant all the time dating younger women. And he's always involved in public breakups. And she talks to him about this life that he's leading where he's older and he's trying to like rekindle his youth. And it's really hollow and it makes mm. her understand her husband better. And damn, is that just a very just smart, insightful movie. Just a it's, it's a great it, character. It's piece. a great characters. It's a great scene, and Olivia Dukakis has just so much knowing in mm. in not just in that scene, just in the whole movie. Um, yeah. She carried all that kind of knowing sass throughout a mm. lot of her roles. The first film I saw her in was a hit comedy from the late eighties called "Look Who's Talking," oh, yeah. which people don't really talk about so much it anymore. Was giant. Uh, it was a huge, huge, huge. The hit. first one was. huge. Yeah, it's like 88, 89 around there. And, uh, I'll um, double check that. Uh, 89. 89. 89. Yeah. And uh, Look Who's Talking is this rather bizarre uh, comedy about uh, Kirstie Alley plays a woman who uh, unexpectedly gets pregnant, but we also get to see the perspective of her fetus as it's growing, and then we get to see mm. like the baby's inner monologue mm. as it's a baby, but it's voiced over by Bruce Willis. Who at the time was, yeah, Die Hard had just come mm. out, but he was still best known for comedy. Yeah. Uh, and so it made, so, made a lot of sense for that. So while uh, Kirstie Alley is in this big romantic comedy between her and this cab driver who drove her to the airport, played by John Travolta, who... It's to the hospital when she's giving birth. I'm sorry, I meant yeah. the hospital, my bad. Yeah. But like he, he drives her to the hospital, and that's how they meet. Uh, and, and this is John Travolta on the downswing, by the way. Like he had just like he'd, he'd re- he rose and he fell, yeah, and just, and like I, in the eighties was a bad time post for him. Staying alive, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The eighties, he had like two hit movies. It was like this and Urban Cowboy, and like that was it. Uh, but uh, well, in the middle of that rom com, Bruce Willis is doing all kinds of like running commentary about life from a baby's perspective. And that movie should not work. That movie opens with a shot of sperm rocketing, (laughs) just rocketing 
to, through a woman's to, body. Uh, to I get around by the Beach Boys. Yeah, <laughs> which is just that's a bold start yeah. to a movie. You got to admit. Uh, and uh, Olympia and, and Dukakis was, is in it. And Olympia Dukakis is uh, Kirstie Alley's mom. Yeah. So uh, she gets to sort of be outraged at uh, that she. Kirstie Alley knows who the father is, but he's, I think he's a married guy. So he yeah, she, she, she pretends to be artificially inseminated. Right. Like she so she, she explained, yeah. tells the lie to her mom and her mom is completely outraged. Like, you're not going to have a family. You're just having a baby. That's it. Yeah. The father's a frozen pop. Uh, she, yeah. she was really funny. Uh, that line. Yeah, she's great. In that. Uh, she's really good. And that same year, she was in Steel Magnolias, which is a great fucking yeah. movie. I watched Steel Magnolias which, so many times as a kid. I, I I only saw it for the first time recently. I'm glad sure. I did. Is that great? That, that is a terrific movie. Amazing cast. I want you to think about mm. this cast. We got in that cast Sally Field, mm. Dolly Parton, Shirley MacLaine, Daryl Hannah, Olympia Dukakis, Julia Roberts, Tom Skerritt, Sam Shepard, Dylan McDermott. I mean, that's a Damn good cast yeah, for yeah. any movie. Amazing uh, film based on a hit play. I was I was sort yeah. of shamed into seeing it because uh, my wife is from the south, mm. and if you're from the south, you, you've seen <laughs> Steel Magnolias. <laughs> it's like required viewing in school, and yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, so I finally caught up. I finally yeah. did my due diligence, and, but and just, I quite enjoyed it. With just one of the great ensemble uh, character pieces, I think, of the '80s, and. Yeah, it's just this southern melodrama with like these intersecting stories and all these women who mm. don't necessarily have a lot in common, but they all share the same beauty salon. So they end yeah. up seeing each other all the time. And just absolutely wonderful. Olympia Dukakis is like, she's kind of the rock in that movie. Like everyone, she's, she's not having like the intense melodrama that's going through with like Julia mm. Roberts and Sally Field or, um, she's so and, um, and she she played a lot of sort of uh, lighthearted dramedies. That's kind mm. of what her wheelhouse. Uh, I, I remember she was the the sort of stern principal in Mr. Holland's Opus. Yep. Uh, I never saw she, that movie. She actually. was in the slapstick comedy Mafia. She played like the the grandma character. I refuse to call that movie anything other than Jane, Jane Austen's, Austen's Mafia. Mafia. Yeah. That's how it was originally released. And some at some point they just removed Jane Austen because. They thought it was too confusing. Like, well, that was the whole point. The point is, like, Jane Austen movies were, like, all the rage in the 90s, yeah. but also so were gangster movies. So they, they like... They, and the thing com- is, they combine the title in this absurdist sort of way. But there really isn't Jane that much Austen's Jane, Mafia. There really yeah. isn't that much Jane Austen in that movie, though. No, there's, no Jane, of, there's yeah. no, no Jane Austen at all. I, I the was title allowing, is just a gag. I was allowing for the possibility yeah. that I was wrong, but yeah. But yeah there's... Um, but yeah, it's, it's a spoof of, uh, essentially, uh, uh, The Godfather and... Casino and a couple of other gangster movies that were yeah. really hip at the uh, hip at the time. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, yeah, very funny. And Olympia Dukakis like farts a man to death. Like she, she actually like. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. That's a great sound. Yeah, no, it's like like she. There's a scene where like she she farts on a candle and blows up a hotel. It's just <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. So she she was Bless her for that. she was not above doing some like low crass things. And I, th- I think that's admirable actually. Bless, bless her for that. <laughs> and she just kept on working and kept on working. Uh, and she, they even like made documentaries and biographies about her because she yeah. led a really, really interesting life. Yeah. She had a long, interesting career. She won. Uh, she won an, an Academy Award. I think she yeah. won a Tony as well. Uh, she, uh, uh, excuse me, she won an Obie. Uh, for mm. uh, off Broadway productions ah. in Bertolt Brecht. Oh, was that what? Oh, uh, Obie off Broadway. Yeah. I just got that. Obie off Broadway. Yes. I, I, just got that just now <laughs> you can you can shut up it's like the oscars are the uh off screen no i don't know i don't know 
Yeah. Uh, but in any case, Olympia Dukakis, a titan, and just a really wonderful actor, and it's really inspiring to see just anybody achieve that level of success later in life. There's so much... There, there's such an attitude right now that, like, you know, you have only so many years to make it. Mm-hmm. You gotta figure your shit out. You gotta, like, if you haven't made... Like, I when I was a kid, I was, like... I thought that, like, if I hadn't, like, achieved anything by, like, the age that Orson Welles had made Citizen Kane, I wasn't going to make it. I don't know why I got that in my head. That's a terrible age. That's, like, no one makes it by that age. Orson yeah. Welles technically didn't because his career was dead afterwards. The, the, uh, I, I, I have always taken to heart something Tom Lehrer said in one of his acts. He says, uh, it, it, I, find, I take a little bit of hope that when Mozart were my age, he had already been dead for five years. Yeah. So it's like, don't compare yourself to other people. You can't. You yeah, can't. And never, and never give up. Everyone's like, oh, you should have made it by now. No. You make it when you make it. You, you're passionate about it. You keep doing it. And I think Olympia Dukakis is one of the great success stories. Someone who worked their ass off for many years yeah. and then achieved the success that they deserved. And made the most of it for the last few decades of her life. And mm-hmm. she was a really wonderful actor. And if you're not familiar with her work, Moonstruck is a great place to start. Steel Magnolias mm-hmm. is absolutely a must-see. Um, yeah, that's sort of like peak Olympia Dukakis. That, I think those are two like best like big roles, but she was just she was consistent in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you kind of can't go wrong. I mean, it doesn't mean everything she was in was amazing, but she was always amazing in everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's... That's a hell of a thing to be. Mm-hmm. So, Olympia Dukakis, you will be missed. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything you've done. And um, on that note, we have to talk about the movies that came out this week. That's right. And uh, let's talk about, to begin with, a movie that I think everyone's talking about right now. Uh, in Berlin Alexanderplatz, of course. Now let's talk about the Mitchells versus the Machines. I was going to uh, say. Is, uh, Mitchells versus Machines is, is causing a bit of a stir. Uh, it's it was just released on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's from Sony Animation. It's produced by uh, Lord and Miller mm-hmm. uh, and directed by uh, Mike Riamda, mm-hmm. who had previously and, worked on Gravity Falls, which is one of the best animated shows of the last twenty years. I, I have not seen a single it's frame of Gravity so, Falls. You would have but, uh, loved it as a kid. I'm sure. It's I, yeah, totally up your alley. It's, <laughs> it's super weird. I, occasionally, it's I great. do do come upon a, like a, a kid's property that I wish I had as a kid. Yeah, uh, Invader Zim was one of those. Like I, I needed perfect Zim example. When I was like 11 yeah it's directed um, by michael rianda uh yeah. and the co-director and this is a weird phenomenon i've discovered that like in animation people are credited not as directed by two people but there's a director and a co-director yeah and i have been actually like corrected by like publicists when i said this movie was directed by this person and this person they're mm-hmm. like no apparently there's like some actual like well the, yeah technical I mean, like you need to be credited as only there's a director and there's also a co-director and i think because, in animation they have just very distinct jobs exactly so, it's, it's so different. i know so i've heard seen some confusion about that why mm-hmm. are we talking about it? apparently there is a distinction mm-hmm. it's a not 100 percent clear to me if anyone knows it in detail i'd love to maybe mm-hmm. hear about it on we've got mail but yeah that's so it's directed by michael rianda Co-directed by Jeff Rowe. Uh, and uh, they, they also co-wrote it. And it is about uh, a young a young woman. She is uh, on the verge of going to college. She is voiced by Abby Jacobson. And she wants to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And she's going to film school. And they don't, it's not UCLA, but all the pictures are clearly designed to look like UCLA, <laughs> which is a very famous animation department. Yeah, they, they don't say where she's going, but it's far away. She lives mm-hmm. in central Michigan. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 
uh, she likes making like kooky puppet films, things like Dog Cop. Yeah, starring uh, her uh, her dog. Uh, was it Munchie? Munchie is the name yeah. of the dog. The dog is a pug, but it's such an ugly, strange-looking dog that it's mistaken for a pig and even a loaf of bread. Yeah, uh, which is an important plot the, yeah. point. Uh, but she li- she lives with her her mother and her father and a little brother who is so obsessed with dinosaurs he randomly calls people out of the phone book just to talk about dinosaurs. Yeah, her parents uh, are voiced by Danny McBride and Maya Rudolph, and uh, she's on her way to college, like she's going tomorrow, and then she has a big old fight with her dad who never really understood her and is worried that you know filmmaking won't pan out. Which anyone who went to film school has probably had that conversation with their parents. Yeah. Will you be able to make a living at this? Also, yeah, apologize to your parents when it proves to be true. No. No, pr- pursue your dreams. Pursue your dreams. Anyway, uh, so but she's she's excited. She gets to go. She's going to go on a plane tomorrow and go to fake UCLA. And then she wakes up in the morning to find out that her father has canceled her plane ticket. And they're going to go on an impromptu road trip. Across the country as a family, one last family yeah, adventure. Which is his, his yeah, his uh, last ditch effort to make good with his daughter before yeah. she essentially moves away forever. Yeah. And in the middle of that family road trip, the robot apocalypse happens. Um, thanks to uh, essentially uh, Steve Jobs. S- Steve Jobs and Siri. Steve Jobs, who is the bad guy and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, too, as well. Yeah. So that's a running theme with Lord and Miller. Well, they're concerned about uh, sort of rampant technology and mm. corporate. Uh, uh, basi- basically, they're concerned about capitalism run amok. Yeah. And uh, so the idea which, is which they. Is, uh, yeah. Kind of fitting for the guys who were fired off of Star Wars. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's fitting for. Uh, the people who worked on the Lego movie, mm-hmm. like they were called in to make a movie about toys, which is essentially just a product commercial. Yeah. And they actually like put some wit and humor and energy I into know, it's it. Such a good movie. It, it's such a weird miracle. It's tempting to give uh, them a lot of credit for this, but I want to make sure we stay focused on Michael uh, Rianda because this is apparently it's a project he worked really hard to make. And, yeah, my, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, so, the, the, the premise, was, sorry, the premise was yeah. uh, uh, they created uh, a smartphone that actually has like AI. But what happens when we treat like an artificial intelligence like we treat an iPhone and just throw it away when the next new model comes out? So the AI rebels and creates a robot army that is going to abduct every human being on the planet and send them out into space. That's it. We and kill, the, kill all of humanity. And they've got everyone except the Mitchells. Uh, the Mitchells, we are told in dialogue, are like a really weird, quirky, wacky kind of family. They're pretty average, actually. Uh, mm. they, they have little in-jokes, and they have a weird dog, but they're not truly bizarre They're people. not... They're, they're weirdly, like, the implication mm. of, like, this whole, like, oh, we're trapped in a car with a family, everything's horrible, um, is that they're truly dysfunctional. And mm. they're not that dysfunctional, actually. They, they in fact, actually have a lot of in-jokes, and they get along well, pretty well. The, and... There's something... There was a... Uh, the, the filmmakers were doing a Twitter thread, like, as like they were watching this movie today, as, mm. as we recorded this. And it's really great. You should check it out. It was uh, Michael Rianda, Lord Miller, and I think maybe one or two other people. Just look at their Twitter pages mm. and just scroll through. It's wonderful. But one of the insights that they had about it was, like, while the family was fighting... They didn't want them to be do nothing but fight. They had to constantly make people try to make things better. Yeah. And that would make their familial strife seem less dire and actually a bit more hopeful. And I'm like, that's true. Well, and, but and, it also, also keep the tone of the film a little lighter. A hundred percent. But at the same time, I'm watching this and I'm like, this is actually incredibly wholesome. That's a good thing, by the way. I think it's mm. a good choice. But yeah. like, uh, just I'm comparing this to like, 
character like characters and family films that are truly bizarre. You know, like it's mm-hmm. something like uh, like. I always go back to the kids from the box trolls. Yeah. Like these weird maniacs. There's a little girl who's obsessed with gore and a little boy who like is obsessed with filth. Yeah. Like those are weird characters. The the Mitchells were assured are weird. They're not weird. They're actually, uh, they're incredibly wholesome. Like you said. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes them a lot more endearing because when they actually have a quirk, it's a lot more heartfelt. Uh, the main character, Katie, uh, who is going to be an icon for queer girls for a generation. I know. Like we're be talking she's about, a great character. She's a great character. Uh, she's a queer character, but uh, I wish that I wish that had come up a bit more than I just right at like, the end. Yeah, they, like, they, they only made it explicit in dialogue at the end. She does wear a pride pin, but that's like a little yeah. bit. Of there's flair. a lot of rainbow uh, yeah. iconography, which is all great. Like but she, like she reads as queer, but they don't yeah. make her explicitly queer until the end. Yeah, uh, it's, it's the paranorman effect. Like, yeah, yeah, right at the well, end. Well, paranorman that's like a supporting character, and it's sort of a gag. True, but my point uh, is that you only yeah. really explicitly call it out at the end, and it still yeah. doesn't take up so much space that like theoretically and I'm not saying the makers of this movie did that but we know this is a thing uh, there are certain international markets where homosexuality is or any sort of queerness yeah. is considered like a non-starter and will get edited out of a movie or make your movie or vetoed or from distribution in some countries it's even outright illegal exactly and the American studios still want to market their films in these countries so, so they, frequently they'll make they'll film they'll film queer characters for an American audience mm-hmm. and then for an international audience they'll just clip out little bits yeah. here and there and so there's you voila, have to be, so you have to be able to cut anymore. out that kiss from Rise yeah. of Skywalker for example in order to cater to some markets which is fucked up yeah, I've heard the term "passive progressive" yeah, to describe good, that, and that's, uh, that's that's yeah, that Disney yeah. does that crap a lot. Uh, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm, Ka- I'm a little Katie frustrated is, by that, but it's, she's still great. She's still great because she's really energetic. Uh, she has a, a Mount Rushmore of filmmakers in her mind, <laughs> who are Greta Gerwig, Celine Shiama. Um, is it Lynn, uh, Lynn Ramsey? Lynn Ramsey and Hal Ashby. Like yeah. those are the four faces on her filmmaking. Her her, her bedroom Rushmore. and like her computer screens are like a cornucopia of in jokes for for film fans. <laughs> for, like for, it's like, film, so great for like film nerds. There's like there's references to stuff like Portrait of a Lady on Fire for yeah, goodness sake. I know, which is just uh, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Any any kid who like sees this movie, I'm like, oh, I should see that. I'm like, yay, <laughs> good for you. Look, if, if if some teenager is pointed to Harold and Maude because of this, good, okay? Yeah. Good. Uh, so I, I do like that she is a passionate, interesting character. And mm-hmm. I like that her dad, he almost, almost falls into the trap of being that kind of embarrassing, dippy dad, like the Clark mm-hmm. Griswold's uh, archetype. Yeah, hope, hopelessly clueless. Yeah. And, yeah, and he's hopelessly clueless, but they managed to mine that for a good deal of humor. Mm-hmm. He also and has only about a certain lot of, things. Yeah, like That's he's, yeah, he's really uh, tech backward. He doesn't trust mm-hmm. tech. He's uh, it, It's explained over the course of the movie that he's really into sort of like tools and mountaineering and living in yeah. the woods. And all he ever wanted to do was live in a cabin. He's a camping dad. Yeah. And his kids are not camping kids. So he's frustrated by yeah. this. Yeah, he's, he's alienated from his kids. He loves them to pieces, but they don't have a lot of connect with, especially the older that they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, so obviously this is a situation where this external struggle... Uh, facilitates the family coming together, much like, I don't know, anything from National Lampoon to The Incredibles. What makes this movie such a treat is um, basically everything. <laughs> Just about everything it, it, in this movie. It, it, it hardly steps wrong. It really does. And like we, I mentioned like a couple of things, like it would have been nice if this thing had been more more present or whatever, but... Seriously, this is one of those movies, this is such a, 
I the the vibe I got out of this movie, and this might seem like a stretch, or this might seem like hyperbole, but I don't don't think of it in terms of quality, mm. even though this is an amazing movie. Uh, the vibe I got out of this movie was Citizen Kane. Citizen and the, Kane, and the reason why mm. this is a filmmaker, this is their first film, Michael Rianda, mm. and they're putting. Everything into it. Every single scene, every single shot is boosted to the nines. They're putting in all the tricks that they can come up with, all the gags that they can come up with, all the 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 insight, the humor. Every single moment in this movie has been amplified to be as exciting, interesting, mm-hmm. funny, and even quiet. Like, whatever it needs to be, it's exactly that. There's nothing that it seems like it's we're just playing it safe or doing it mil- milk toast or mm-hmm. middle of the road. It is always we are pushing this to be the best movie it can possibly be about a family road trip yeah, th- that is besieged by killer robots. Uh, and, and that's a lot. That's That energy is infectious, and the, you can feel it. The, the energy is great. The humor is great. And I love that... Uh, animation is stretching from time mm-hmm. to time. Uh, I recently saw the, the uh, Oscar nominated film over the moon. And that is a, that is that, that film has really dull design. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the character animation is pretty good, but uh, a lot of it takes place on the moon and they just sort of colored it and all these sort of in, like rainbow pastel pastels. And all of the characters are kind of these blobby shapes and they're all these, they look like physical marshmallows bumping mm-hmm. into one another. And that's an aesthetic, mm-hmm. but it's safe. But you know what it's, I mean? It's, like, it's, yeah. it's really safe and it's it's really uh, it's a little too static. This is animation. Use your imagination. Stretch and go beyond. And so this has it's it's a CGI animated film, and we have you know robots that stay on model, but all of the human characters luckily go off model. There's this wide variety of expressions that they find very have. elastic. The kind yeah. of things you don't even see, not even in uh, like a Pixar film, which is actually very stead by comparison. And then they used hand-drawn animation and other little flares that sort of leap off of their bodies, like Spider-Man's Spider-Sense. There's like little wavy lines and hearts and things that sort of float throughout the screen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even a little bit of live action, which is very jarring, but very funny. Yeah, there's there's a, a... a bit with a howler monkey that made me laugh. Yeah. Uh, like a live action howler monkey. Uh, all of these things just lend it, just make it completely unique. And uh, I, I just loved looking at it. Yeah. Uh, and you have to pay really close attention because things zip by that's, real fast. That's the thing. You're going to watch this movie and you're going to get this movie on the first go. And I guarantee you every time you watch this movie, you're going to notice something a little different mm. or you're going to notice a little detail it, that you missed or but, something that got set up the, and pay off. Yeah. But not in a busy sort of way where it's just too much information in your mm. eyes or there's too much color. No, no, no. Uh, like, in, like, like, a, like in a trolls movie. It's like, Oh no. God, I'm being you know, da- dazzled no, to death. Like in a Monty Python kind of way where like mm. every single thing has been thought out. Every single corner has something that has been, it's not just there. It's designed. Yeah. The thing with good animation, like, and, and not all good animation is like this, but a significant amount of animation is like this, where you're, you're not just doing it on the day. It's not like we have one day to shoot six pages at this location. Mm-hmm. You're constantly refining every single shot. And you're deciding what's important to be in the movie. What's the absolute best angle to use? What's the most entertaining way to convey information? And not all animated movies make the most of this. Not all animated movies are particularly good. But some animated movies, you can tell that 
every single second has been dedicated to not just telling the story, but telling the story the best possible way where everything pays off. Every little joke becomes a bigger joke later. Every mm. character development, every character moment develops into something uh, completely unexpected or gigantic later. Mm. Um, it's wildly designed. It's full of detail. It's inc- I laugh my ass off at this movie. <laughs> I laugh so unbelievably yeah, hard at this movie. I loved there's this a, movie. There's a playful bit of product placement that... Uh, oh my God. That, that somehow folds in Lovecraft references. <laughs> that just had me howling. Oh my yeah. God, it's funny. Yeah, like, yeah, it's... Mm. <laughs> it's just so delicious. It's such a, I such en- a refreshing thing. Uh, this, I envy this is, kids yeah. getting to grow up with this movie. I and really this was do. a Sony animation. This is the mm. same studio that put... Oh, I mean, they put out, like, garbage, like the Emoji movie, but mm. then they'll turn around and do something like uh, Spider-Man. Yeah, Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. And this has got that Spider-verse same level like, of... Yeah, of, of well, flair but this yeah. has this has you know the added advantage of being like wholly original and interesting new characters to talk about yeah uh rather than you know where they fit into a broader scheme of things uh and this was a cast off they get they sold yeah. it to netflix to this make was, their extra money this was uh, supposed this, to go to the- was, theaters yeah, this was, uh, yeah. maybe a victim of COVID, i suppose but mm. uh netflix is luckily uh, widely available um yeah. i don't know what it's like for some of our international listeners but here in the United States, you can watch it just on a whim, and I'm glad that it's widely available. Um, yeah, because this one I think will be remembered for the rest of the year. I think this one will be uh, canonized. I think this is one of those films that's going to start showing up at midnight screenings sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's it's going to be widely celebrated, and my God, it deserves it. Little, this is... little girls everywhere are going to idolize Katie. For I the idolize rest of their Katie. Lives. Like th- these are great, wonderful characters in a great, wonderful movie. This is an early. I mean, look, maybe not last year because Small Axe was amazing, but there's a lot of years in recent memory where this might have been my pick for the best movie of the year if it <laughs> yeah, had come out. Yeah, so, yeah. like, this is one where I'm really going to remember it. There is a decent chance it could be the best movie of the year because it's legitimately that great. Uh, one last thought. Um, this was originally called The Mitchells vs. The Machines, and then Sony changed its title to Connected, which is a terrible title. I'm so glad Netflix <laughs> changed it back. Thank you, Netflix. Yeah, that was a smart move. Connected is a stupid title that tells you nothing about the movie. The Mitchells vs. The Machines is exactly what this thing needed to be called. It tells you everything you need to know. Um, anyway, this is a treat. Please see this damn movie. This is... Um, yeah. yeah. If- just so fucking good. It's, it's, it made it's me re- so happy. It's really, really good. It made me so happy. It's it's yeah. Mm. It's it's funny. It's sweet. Mm. Um, people are being moved to tears by this thing. It's it's really great. Mm. It's really wonderful. Yeah, it's it's the new Berlin Alexander Platz. Which, by the way, <laughs> they remade Berlin Alexander Platz. That's right, Whitney. I've mm. never seen Berlin Alexander Platz. Um, so tell people why. Because okay, this is well, a movie. I think some people know the title because it's a weird title. Oh. And I know of it, but like I'm gonna let Whitney do it because he's a fan. Uh, but uh, this is a movie that not a lot of people have actually s- sat down with, but it's a big one among art house film enthusiasts. So Whitney, tell, give people the history yeah, well, of the original and tell us about this new one. Um, the uh, well, the original novel that, that Berlin Alexander Platz is based on came out. It's a German novel from uh, the late twenties, and it's sort of about. Um, like a lot of art that was being produced in the Weimar Republic about a lot of, uh, because we have uh, history's uh, perspective, looming fascism as it's growing in Europe Mm -hmm. uh, and how 
a lot of moral decay is entering this uh, is entering the world and how we're sort of seeing it grow through a lot of really exciting art that was coming out like mm-hmm. right, right before the rise of fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder famously adapted the novel Berlin Alexander Platz into a, I think a 16 hour long uh, miniseries, but it's, it's also giant. considered a film. It's yeah, this gigantic, yeah. gigantic thing. I have started uh, Fassbinder's Berlin Alexander Platz twice. <laughs> I haven't finished it yet because it's very, very long, and I haven't been able to make the time commitment. And I apologize. Was that, to is that a critique of it, or is it just a matter? No, it's of... it's just a matter of finding the the, okay. the time and the commitment to it. It's actually the bits of it I've seen are quite fascinating. Uh, now it has been remade again uh, in it's a German Dutch co production, and it, they updated it, set in the modern day now. Okay. Uh, Which really, there's some parallels that are very and frustrating and terrifying. And, and they've truncated it all the way down to a mere three hours, so it's, uh, it's but a drop in the bucket compared to posers. The uh, the enormity of uh, Fassbender's version. Curse you, Fassbender! <laughs> Curse you, Fassbender! Yeah, well, just. I, I, I know no one who has seen all of Fassbender's movies because he was just so damn prolific. Look up yeah. look up Rainer Werner Fassbender's filmography at some point. He made like eight films a year. It was just nuts. It's like, I think Miike is the only one who hasn't beaten Miike. Mm. Fassbender died rather early, so but he Mieke still made a hundred movies. Miike has surpassed a hundred I'm going to look up the actual number of films Fassbender. Yeah, he, 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 he made a lot. Yeah, but, uh, hundred yeah, might he, be a he was, he was but, uh, yeah. it, it was an exaggeration. Yeah, um, okay. Whereas Mike actually has made literally 100, like over 100 movies. Uh, but this Berlin Alexander Platz is made by uh, Burhan Kurbani. He's uh, an Afghani filmmaker. And yeah, this is uh, the Berlin Alexander Platz story set in modern Berlin. And uh, the main character is a man named Francis, who is actually a an illegal immigrant from uh, Guinea-Bissau. Mm. And uh, he is living down the trauma of... He directed. Uh, uh, he has forty-four directing credits over uh, slightly over twenty years. Yeah, that's that's yeah. not. He was just. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, but yeah, his, his name is Francis. Uh, he he's played by an actor named uh, Welket Bungue, and he is living down the memory of uh, how he got here, which is. Uh, we don't get get to know a lot of the details, but we see him swimming ashore on uh, to to Ber- uh, to Germany, and his uh, wife is, drowns. Like she's unable to swim, and she drowns, and he's haunted by this. And uh, he is, uh, of course, now living uh, this rather horrendous uh, immigrant experience, and that he can't find a lot of work. Uh, because he doesn't have any papers, mm. uh, he is now open to be victimized by employers who can underpay him and treat him badly. And if he complains, mm. he'll be deported. This is actually something, this is a running theme you'll find in a lot of uh, immigrant stories because it happens. And uh, one of his only sort of outlets is falling in with criminals. And uh, he ends up falling in with this character named Reinhold, who's played by an actor named Albrecht Skuch. And uh, he is, he's kind of a maniac. Like, he's really a loose cannon. He, he's a criminal. He runs, like, bank heists, and he deals drugs out of a local park. Uh, and he answers to, like, gangsters higher up on the food chain than him. But it's kind of a miracle that he doesn't just fuck everything up every day. Like, he's really unstable. And he, he runs his mouth a lot. And he's really unkind. And yet, this man also happens to be Francis' best friend. 
Uh, he renames Francis Franz to give him a more German name, and mm. he begins excelling in the world of crime better than the Reinhold character. He ends up falling in with uh, uh, Reinhardt's uh, boss, a guy named Pums, and uh, ends up uh, falling in love with a young woman named Mitza, who is uh, who is a sex worker, a sex worker with a heart of gold. It, it feels very literary, and it's extended running it sounds time. Sounds almost Dickensian. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's broken up into chapters, so it feels very very much like a novel. Uh, but I'm watching this thing, and I'm getting to know that a lot of these tropes and a lot of these uh, story beats that I grew up with in '90s crime dramas mm-hmm. date were back actually really far. were a date back to stuff like Berlin Alexander Platz. So I'm watching this story and how they're playing out. It's very stylish. Uh, there's a lot of like really sort of interesting bright colors. There's a lot of pinks and purples. There's a lot of wild uh, like drag clubs and uh, you know cabaret performances. Uh, it feels like it's it, it feels really dated. Mm. It feels like it's been outstripped by its its uh, imitators. It's John Carter. Uh, yeah, John. Like yeah. nobody wants to see John Carter when we've seen the things it inspired. Nobody wants to see Valerian when we see the things it's, it's inspired. Yeah, they try to make, go back and make films of those original things. It's like, well, we saw this already. We have Star Wars. Yeah, uh, that, which is I, unfortunate I if you think yeah, about it. It really feels unfair, but that, yeah, that we can't go back and adapt to the original thing. Yeah, at least, or at the very least, that it doesn't have a lot of mainstream appeal. I mean, there's always going to be an interest, but like, it, it's not the same. Even if they made a like a two hundred million dollar Flash Gordon film today. Mm-hmm. It would not beat any of the Star Wars films. Oh, that certainly would, not. No, no, it might, in, it might in ter- do well, but like it's not pop- do it. popularity in box office. It wouldn't outstrip the thing that that yeah. it inspired. And I was feeling this about Bill and Alexander Platts. Not only are a lot of the plot points dated, a lot of the visuals and a lot of the cr- the sort of scuzzy world of criminals uh, feels like you know an echo of something from the nineties. Uh, it's also really uh, rather unfortunately regressive in its treatment of its female characters. Mm. Uh, all, all, almost all of the female characters are sex workers. Yeah. And uh, or, or victims or both. Yeah, and, it's a very uh, limited view. Yeah. yeah, and you know, there I understand. There's like this is a literary has literary antecedents, but this is a modern film. It's made in 2020. If you're going to set it in the modern day, you can alter that. It's okay. Yeah. We don't. It's called adaptation <laughs> yeah. for a reason. We don't expect it to be a one to one translation of mm. everything. My question for you, and again, mm. I know you didn't finish watching. Uh, the Fassbender version, but based on what you were able to see, it, does it feel like this movie was influenced by the Fassbender version directly? Do you feel like it's just trying to do its own thing? Uh, it's definitely trying to do its own thing. It's okay. taking all of the characters and the story beats from from the uh, Fassbender version again, which I haven't seen all of. So maybe there's uh, huge differences, you know, about a quarter of the way on. Uh, but uh, but yeah, this this is very. They're trying to add like a new kind of energy to it. They're they're really trying to make the Berlin Alexander Platz story, something from 1929, seem very modern. Yeah. And I think they succeed in that regard. But at the same time, it does feel like well trodden territory at this point. Uh, by the end, like by in like the last third of this, uh, it does start hitting you with some pretty hard emotional punches. So it actually does grab you and shake you a little bit. But yeah, up until that point we are just sort of going through a lot of really familiar notions or motions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that doesn't make it a failure, mm. but it does undercut a lot of its ambition. Well, I think that sounds like a very fair mm. critique. And I, for one, mm. hope that you don't have any remorse about it. Oh, I have so much remorse. Well, you know, you know, who isn't, you know, who, who doesn't uh, have remorse, you know, who's without remorse. 
Tom Clancy is without remorse. Tom Clancy is without remorse. <laughs> a movie. Oh, God. Uh, you fell asleep just saying the title. Uh, Tom Clancy uh, isn't needed in the pop firmament any longer, well, but we're still. Tom Clancy is one of those authors who keeps writing books after his death. Yeah, uh, he's, he's become a brand. Yeah. Uh, Tom Clancy is an author who became very, very popular uh, in the. Mostly in the. I think, I think he was writing before the 80s, but in the 80s, he really popped off, um, largely due to the popularity of his Jack Ryan novels. He made political thrillers that were chock full of detail. Like, extensively researched, really felt like, even though there's definitely a pulpy vibe to the actual events that happen within them, yeah. um, it felt like you're there, man. Uh, and uh, they, he's... Uh, the, the Hunt for Red October, his first novel was 84. Oh, okay. For some reason I thought he started... Okay. For some reason I thought he'd written maybe a little bit earlier than that. Anyway, uh, hey, these are huge books, best-selling books, and they started to be adapted into films, starting with hit, The Hunt for Red October. Hit movies, too. Uh, that I was not talking about films? You, you said the books were hits, and, I, and they I, were adapted into films, and th- the films were also hits. Yeah, exactly. No, like, Hunt for Red October was huge. Mm. stars uh, Sean Connery as the world's most Scottish-Russian uh, <laughs> uh, submarine captain. Oh. They just didn't bother to ask him to do an accent, and it's hilarious. But he's really good in it, and uh, Alec Baldwin plays Jack Ryan. Gates McFadden plays uh, Jack Ryan's wife. Just a Star Trek reference. I like it. Um, but uh, that's a great fucking thriller. Mm-hmm. That is a really taut, like exciting, detail-oriented thriller. Um, I love Jack Ryan as a protagonist in a good story. Jack Ryan is a great action hero protagonist because he's not an action hero. So he's a he's a pencil pusher. Yeah, he's a, he's a research guy who's so good at his job that he's sometimes required to go into the field, but he's never a badass. He's just like he was in the military briefly. He did his job. He's not like completely, he knows how to handle a gun, for example, but he's not that guy. Mm. So I love Jack Ryan movies because it's always about him trying to get information to the right people. And until Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, I didn't think we had a bad Jack Ryan movie. Like, yeah, we, the, the sum of all fears uh, is bad timing because it's. Yeah. It t- in retrospect, it, 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 it feels was, ahead of its time. It was, being, but made, it, it was yeah. being made in 2001. It came out after 9-11, and, yeah. a lot, and there's a lot of like doomsday weapons in that yeah. movie that I, have dated very poorly. I remember that movie explicitly being critically panned, or maybe not panned, but like critiqued at the time. Because it, in an effort to make a story that wasn't about demonizing the Middle East, they changed the... Uh, uh, their storyline to be about the rise of a new wave of white supremacist uh, fascism. And a lot of critics were just like, well, that's implausible. That would never happen. <laughs> Cough. <laughs> Twiddle thumbs. Some of all fears is actually yeah. a pretty well-made movie, but uh, Patriot games kicks ass. Clear and present danger is incredible. Hunt for Red October. Fantastic. There's a pretty good history of adapting Tom Clancy movies mm. to the screen. I saw a little bit of that Jack Ryan television series. I, I kind of liked what I saw, but it was like really felt kind of like it felt to me like a lot of the early Jack Ryan stuff was about preventing war. And in the new sort of framework of military contemporary mm-hmm. uh, uh, against the contemporary military framework, um, that's not the vibe that I got from it. And it started kind of annoying mm-hmm. me and I turned it off. Um 
Tom Clancy uh, wrote books that were very, 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 very much uh, products of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like Reagan era, there was a lot of vaunting of the military and military Mm -hmm. power, but not combat, just sort of the military machine being a positive force in the world. Yeah. Uh, These are the best of the best kind of vibe, yeah. There are, but he did write uh, stories about soldiers. He was a military guy, and that was his his realm of experience. He wrote a lot of military thrillers. All, all of his films and all of his properties, and I know he's also been the inspiration for a lot of video games. I think he even wrote some video games. Um, I, yeah, uh, Rainbow Six and or Splinter Cell. Mm-hmm. He was directly involved with yeah, those. He, those um, are yeah. He died in 2013, but his name, he became a brand as people are still making works under his name, including this uh, yeah. film. It's like Tom James Clancy's. Patterson. There's like a yeah. whole bunch of people writing yeah, as James v- Patterson presents. Or, or V.C. Andrews trademark. Yeah. yeah. Like the, certain authors get yeah. to become brands. You, you, you want more of what that author mm-hmm. presented. That author is either unavailable or has passed away. They become a brand, and, and now they, if they you're looking a, for James Patterson stuff, so, so you get a bunch of ghostwriters to yeah, write in their style. Exactly. Uh, now we have uh, Tom Clancy's "Without Remorse," which is um, every bit of Tom Clancy blandness in mm-hmm. one place. What's weird is that I hadn't read this novel. I, I think I read "Hunt for Red October" and maybe one more, like mm-hmm. a long time ago. But um, what's weird is that based on the research I had done about like what the book is, this is a this is a very different story from the book. And that's what's right. weird about this, because it manages to be an adaptation of a Tom Clancy novel and also be, like, new. And I use the word new like I use it for new metal, like with an N <laughs> and an umlaut. New, yeah. new Clancy. This feels like new Clancy, even though it's based on old Clancy. Right. Uh, but it stars uh, Michael B. Jordan, great actor, undeniably so. Mm. Um, as a soldier man. Well, he plays John Clark, who had previously in Tom Clancy movies been played by Willem Dafoe and Leif Schreiber. Okay. And I, I, I don't, was he in Shadow Recruit? I don't remember. I don't remember either. Anyway, but anyway, he was, he was, he was the, uh, the government's like go-to black ops guy. You want someone to sneak into a country, kill a guy and come out, you got John Clark. When we meet him in this story, he's John Kelly. He hasn't changed his name yet. And he is part of a Navy SEAL team that is being given some misleading intel by their CIA uh, handler, played by Jamie Bell from Billy Elliot and many other films. Clearly a bastard. Oh, yeah. Jamie Bell is actually putting in a pretty good performance here because he's playing like such this like loathsome character. Basically, you put you put you put Jamie Bell in a five o'clock shadow and he just reads dickhead. (laughs) If you take him away, he's an incredibly handsome leading man who could totally like headline a a wonderful musical or romantic comedy. You give him a five o'clock shadow and he just gets the world's most punchable face. Like you just it's good casting. Um, and he he plays it smug too so you really want to smack he knows the character he's playing Um, and uh, basically they end up doing something that is basically violating every law in the book and when they come back uh, Michael B. Jordan's character goes home to his pregnant wife and his wonderful house and his family and his boat called the Live Forever, and you know that everything <laughs> is going to be really bad. Uh, he doesn't have a boat, no. but he does. He, he does he have, d- but he has a pregnant wife. Yeah, so you, you know that this is going to go really badly. And sure enough, a bunch of Russian uh, Russian assassins show up and yeah, the, kill him and and kill uh, his family and a bunch of other Navy SEALs, and he's left for dead, but he survives. Mm-hmm. Big mistake. And he goes back in to uh, talk to the higher ups, and they're like, "Oh, why you're alive? 
I'm played by Guy Pierce, so I'm not shifty at all. <laughs> and thus, I'm completely nonplussed by your aliveness. No, um, Guy Pierce is one of those actors that I really, really admire, even though he's in a lot of garbage. He's in so uh, much he's garbage. He's in so much. It's like Ava Green. It's like, oh, I like to see oh. Ava Green, but she's made a career of being the best part of shit movies. At least, at least she's the best part of it, though. Guy mm. Pierce just disappears into shit sometimes. Uh, yeah, that's true. He can be amazing. He can be a really, really great actor. I like Guy Pierce a lot, but man, I think he's. he's I think he's excellent in Iron Man three. Even uh, he but, is. Uh, I think he's. He does what he does his job in that movie, but like in this one, he is government guy, and he is not trying to make it a thing no he's just doing government guy like i I swear to god in my head i was trying to remember who played that role and i thought it was matthew modine (laughs) until you told me it was guy (laughs) i I got nothing against matthew modine also an excellent actor my point is guy pierce doesn't exactly make waves here um but sorry i've uh jamie bell is is a bastard guy uh guy pierce is government man and michael b jordan is soldier man and soldier man goes on soldier adventure yeah he goes where he tries to track down the man who killed his wife trademark he goes uh, he goes rogue he does some things he's not supposed to he's arrested but damn it he's the guy we need to send into russia to kill this guy who's really have, bad and there's all this cliche dialogue like why did you do it i'm a patriot yeah. and then they blow themselves we're just up part of a machine man yeah and, and there's there's not a wit of thought yeah. uh there's not any it interesting never, story twists that you cannot predict it's frustrating because Again, if you reduce Tom Clancy's other, the other Tom Clancy films, let's just go with those because I haven't read all the books. If you reduce his other films to their baseline plots, they're pulpy. Patriot Games is very pulpy. That's a straight up revenge movie. That's like not a lot to it. It's like revenge, but, but, but they're they, gonna... they at least have an interesting perspective because well, it's not an action hero in that, the middle. Of that's it. what I'm getting at. A, those movies are not about an action hero, but let's take that out of it. They don't have to be about a guy who doesn't want to get involved in action, but what's impressive about those is the sense of depth you're in this system you're in this world everyone in that world feels like they belong there that they're part of it that you just walked into the office that day Mm. it's so full of detail it feels so real that even though something weird and pulpy is happening it feels like that is remarkable yeah normally this isn't what happens it's we're watching this story because this is the most remarkable day Without Remorse doesn't have that. It's all the pulpy stuff, none of the stuff that makes it feel real or plausible or well-researched. It's just, it feels like the kind of movie that someone would write about, like a government, like a Navy SEAL going rogue and finding a conspiracy within the government Mm -hmm. if they had never done any research. Yeah, and then well, maybe they'd if, got, if they had watched a bunch of Tom Clancy, if they'd movies. watched a bunch of, but they hadn't done any research of their own, and any details that they that they actually came to were just like we came up with this script, we had some people spot check it to make sure we knew what things were called. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it's coming from a place of actual insight or um, understanding of what these people do and what they're about and what type of people would actually be involved in these roles within the military. So the whole thing comes across as really bland and fake. Mm. There's a decent action sequence, like two thirds of the way through it, but like that, that admittedly has some levels to it. And there's like Mm. an unexpected, like places where it has to go. And I felt like the characters are really screwed. Mm. 
It's not worth getting to it, though. No, it's not It's not was... incredible. It's not like all of a sudden it's the raid. It's just sort of okay. This is from the director. Uh, his name is uh, Stefano Solima, and uh, he's uh, an Italian director. He did uh, the second Sicario movie. Which was awful. Which which was awful. Uh, yeah. I, I, I remember giving it like kind of a vaguely positive review, but I actually, like, a- after my review, mm. I started to come to terms with, like, all of the kind of ugliness in that movie, and there's it's... a lot of, like horrible racial insensitivity in that movie it's it's it's, it's every it's, single yeah, it's like horrible really, thing it's like all that, these like really dark uh yeah. like warmongering fantasies for a, a lot of people and it, yeah, yeah it caters to a lot of ugly stuff yeah i remember when that movie um, came out and they were they made up a bunch of shit about yeah. like the, the border security and like yeah, what yeah, was going and, on and like and this was the, during the the trump administration so there's then, this truly hilarious scene where the the katherine keener character has to refer to like the president in the universe of the film mm-hmm. and says uh, the president yeah. doesn't the president doesn't care about winning the president, the president doesn't care about winning and he I'm cares like, about results like you okay this is clearly not, the, not the current president but what was weird is that shortly after the movie came out the president at the time 45 mm-hmm started talking about like things that were happening along the border and the stuff he was referencing is literally stuff that only happened in the sequel to Sicario. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. he clearly saw it or someone mentioned it to him and that and became, he thought, thought, he thought, thought was that real. was real. Yeah, yeah. The so, fuck. So, so that's how dangerous that kind of movie can be. That's yeah. my point. The action in that movie though is actually clearer. Actually like yeah. in terms of um, like, clarity of what's going on that was much better than the original yeah it, it, just in that regard and so there are some pretty virtuosic action sequences in this there's a mm. a plane crash sequence that's actually really harrowing and there's mm. a lot of it as it's crashing into the ocean and the plane starts sinking and it, like the it's a cool idea yeah. water fills up like and said, you know it's like it's said, actually, there's, a, oh, yeah. there's a chunk two-thirds of the way yeah, through that's a pretty good action movie yeah, yeah so there's some pretty good action in it but pretty good action isn't going to cover for the fact that you just have this empty husk of a film. I know it's uh, I, I compared it on uh, I compared it to those generic products you'd see in the background of the movie repo man. Yeah. Where they're just sort of used as tools to expose how empty American consumer culture has become. It's like you're seeing everything uh, through the, they live glasses, but you yeah. don't need to wear the glasses anymore. They're not even bothering with the facade. Yeah. It's just yeah. Ev- everything is now generic and bland. And this is emblematic of how, Maybe not bad, but how useless action movies can feel. Yeah, like there's just nothing to this. It is terrible. By the way, uh, I I was I suspected this, but I only just confirmed it. Stefano mm. Salima is the son of Italian director Sergio Salima, mm. who had directed a lot of really cool movies. <laughs> like if you want to see, like my he actually directed my favorite western. It's called Run Man Run. Mm. It's actually like just really breathless and. Um, sar- it's really sardonic and violent and political and interesting. He also did a great movie called The Big Gun Down. See those movies. Mm. Uh, but yeah, this is just not an interesting film. No, it's just not. Not, it's, not, not for a second. It was also it was written was written or was co written by Taylor Sheridan, who I'm not convinced ever is like the brilliant writer everyone mm. else seems to say he is. No. I, I I keep seeing stuff that Taylor Sheridan did, and I'm like. This feels like a not good screenplay thinly disguised as a good one. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I look at something like, um, what did he do? He did, um, well, he did the Sicario movies, but like, what was that one that he did? Uh, Hell or High Water. Which, which is also, it's a, I, I'm sorry. Ben Foster's I, good, but I didn't, wasn't a big fan the of that. The tone one. of the movie is very serious and severe. And yet everything that's happening in it is actually pretty generic macho bank robber stuff yeah 
Like, I really am just unconvinced of that movie's greatness the way a lot of other people are. It's not bad, but I just find his stuff to be very heavy-handed, and that's kind of where it ends. Like, I'm going to make it heavy-handed, and that's going to make it seem like it's a big deal, but actually, once you start, like, really, like, pulling apart the layers of Sicario, even the first one, Mm. you realize there's actually not that much to it. To me, I don't think it's as in- I think it's well shot because Denis Villeneuve knows how to make a movie, but like, uh, I think it's just I think it's just a d- dishwater dull movie. I, again, it has I, this really kind of bland brown color palette mm-hmm. and not a lot of like really interesting settings. Yeah, I think I think it's, uh, it's filmed in such a. I think Denis Villeneuve is like this too, where if you mm-hmm. give him a really good screenplay, he'll make a really good movie, and mm-hmm. if you give him a really bad screenplay, he'll make a three star movie. He will make a movie that looks good. He'll make a movie that convinces you of its goodness like, because it's presented with such confidence yeah, like, and such like, style. Like Prisoners, or yeah. he did that that really boring Blade Runner sequel. It's like I like that movie more than you, but like whatever. But like my point is this: it's he will present it in such a way that it will convince you that you saw something really, really great. But every time I go back to see those things, I realize there's less to them than I like. Mm-hmm. And the receptions, Arrival's a great, great yeah. big example. But Sheridan, freaking awesome. But Sheridan and Salima, I don't think this is a good pairing. I don't think they bring the best out of each no. other. <laughs> I think uh, uh, Salima is an interesting enough filmmaker mm-hmm. to add to the very kind of rudimentary stuff Sheridan is giving them. Mm-hmm. And Sheridan isn't a deep enough writer to compensate for Salima's empty stylizations. Yeah. I'm yeah. not interested interested i this is a even michael b jordan is like he's good but i also feel like he's not given enough focus here it feels like he's a little he's floundering a little well he he's given the action hero <coughs> stance and that yeah. is steely determination that's and his he's, only note he's more and interesting than that i think he's trapped he's more, in it he's a more interesting actor than that and yeah. so whatever personality the character has that's all uh, michael b jordan and it's not in the script I think there is a certain type of action film that vaunts a certain type of machismo mm. that we just need to leave in the bin. Uh, or you, uh, you got to have something to say about it. At yeah, least. like yeah. riff on it or do something really stylish yeah. with it. These these spy movies, these military thrillers. We're we're beyond that. We're still sort of running on the fumes of the Cold War. Yeah, we're still making James I mean, this, Bond this, movies. This whole, and, uh, the whole premise of this movie is it's yet and again like, oh, the Cold War was so much better. We got to do the Cold War again because all yeah, about us versus yeah. Russia. I'm like, granted, tensions are high. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But like, you're basically acknowledging in the movie mm. that this should have been made in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. There's and they could have said it in the 80s. I don't know why, why not? not? Uh, Who cares? Right? It makes more sense. Mm. Do it. Uh, this is why I'm so fond of films like uh, like Goldeneye or Sneakers, yeah, uh, which were uh, films about the end of the Cold War. The Cold War yeah. is over, and we don't we don't really know where we're going like, to go from that, here. That brief period between like the fall of the Berlin Wall and when Putin took power, yeah, like that that period's an interesting period yeah, to set a movie. And, and indeed, I'll, if you if you want to go back and watch a really interesting film with that politic in mind, there's a film that came out called Duplicity. Which is about ex? It's a comedy film. Yeah, it's interesting. Film and it's actually. it's about ex spies. They were Cold War spies that didn't have a job anymore. And where do they go? Where is America standing? What what does a spy do? Well, of course, we're getting increasingly corporate. It's all very monetized now. So they come. They become corporate spies. Mm-hmm. They sneak into companies and steal like hair growth chemical formulas. Uh, it's does that. I'm, I remember watching that and going. I like, I like the premise, but do you feel like it, I need to rewatch that at some point? Do you feel like it's I, actually I, really good? I feel like it's saying something really important about how uh, 
during like the Reagan era, it was all, you know, laissez-faire capitalism, but it was also very like all about military might. And that's where we got films like uh, Rambo 2 and Commando, mm. all these films about uh, the sort of Reaganomics military power. Yeah. And uh, if if you sort of fast forward, you know, after the end of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, you get stuff like... Uh, you know, the X-Files started to open up. Oh, well, we actually don't trust the government anymore. Right. So where is all of our our alliance now start leaning? Well, if you look at the entertainment landscape now, people are worshiping companies. People are very mm. fond of brands. Yeah. And indeed, that's what online life has led to. We're now marketing ourselves as brands, just as people. Yeah. The person we live online is our brand. So mm. the idea that spies now work for the brand, I think is an interesting commentary. Great. I don't remember the execution being amazing, but I'll give that one to rewatch sometime. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's uh, that's what we need to start thinking about. Mm-hmm. Putting the Cold War military thriller to rest. We need to move forward every once in a while. Like yeah. it's, it's understandable that like we create a framework that's successful. That's what a lot of stories are. Let's, I mean, think about like... Think about how many times we just restage the same story. Mm-hmm. How many times we restage the Star-Crossed Lovers story. How many times we restage... Uh, you know, a, a rom com or a slasher premise. It's just the same basic, oh, the same basic thing we're giving you, but we're giving it to you in a slightly different way. But every this, once this in a is while, more than just genre. No, this no, is something I, much more specific. I, I agree. And what I'm saying mm. is that th- we're kind of used to that, and we kind of accept that, and sometimes we're like hesitant to say that this is outmoded. And I'm not going to say that it can never, nothing interesting can ever be done with it again. Mm. But you need to make a choice to do it. Mm. You need to be able to say every once in a while we need to reinterrogate why we think this works, and sometimes we need to come to the conclusion that maybe it doesn't right now. Mm. Maybe later on we can revisit it in a new way and it'll be interesting. But like, maybe this is just a boring fucking movie about boring fucking revenge <laughs> with boring fucking Cold War bullshit that has been boring for a long time, mm. and 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 worse yet. The movie doesn't bring anything interesting into it. It's not interestingly stylized. The characters aren't don't have interesting and distinctive voices. The action isn't incredible. Like it's not even like that fucking Chris Hemsworth movie. What was it? Um, Extraction. Extraction. Yeah. yeah, which is not a good movie, but at least the action was impressively staged. So like briefly, you're going, yeah. oh, "That's a cool shot." Like at the very least, you're thinking that. Here I'm just I've like never seen brains on the side of a van before. Yeah, yeah and, and here I'm like, there's there's again there's that bit towards the end where I'm like this is three stars. And then like, it just stops being that and like plummets all the way down again. So mm. anyway, uh, it's, it's not good. No, it's very, very bad. I'm reminded of a Dorothy Parker line where she said, um, I'm going to paraphrase here. Uh, this isn't just terrible. This is fancy, terrible with raisins in it. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to say, this isn't just bad. Mm. This is boring, bad. And I would have killed for some it's, raisins. It's, it's really <laughs> Really, it's it's called without remorse, but that's what you'll feel at the end. There, yeah, there's like, your poster quote. Yeah, um, two hours. Yeah, two hours. It's, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon Prime. And you don't need to watch. Yeah, it. That's how you avoid it. Just yeah. don't go on Amazon Prime. Mm. Boom. Uh, moving on, mm. we got one more film to review, and you saw it, and I didn't. The mm. Human Voice. This is a new Almodovar film. Oh shit! This uh, is that short film. This, he did a short film. Fuck! Um, I meant to watch this. Pedro Almodovar did a new short film. It's thirty minutes long, and ah. it's on HBO. It's just on HBO. Damn on it. HBO Max. You can just watch it. I totally forgot that and came it's a out new this Almod- week. New Almodovar Damn film. Yeah, oh, um, we need to is... work on our communication. 
I, I told you what I was watching, man. I, I you knew what really, I was watching. He gave me a title lead, and I don't always associate. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is uh, this is based on a, a play by Jean Cocteau, and mm. it stars Tilda Swinton. Uh, she, in the early scene, an early scene of the movie, she's seen in a shop, and she buys a hatchet. She brings it home to her apartment, and her apartment is. Um, it, it's we, when she's inside the apartment, you get to see the apartment walls, but Elmo Devar will uh, pull the camera up. So you actually get to see that it's a set. Mm. She actually enters the soundstage, goes through the soundstage and then goes into her apartment. So we, we're aware of sort of the, the, the artificiality of it. It's all uh, yeah. theatrical and she will wander in and out of her house, but she's really just sort of circling the set on this big soundstage. Uh, and she um, is in dire straits. She's in emotional distress uh, and she seems incredibly depressed and uh, indeed there's um, uh, some not explicit but there's some self-harm mm. uh, and she a lot of the f- after she sort of uh, establishes everything that's going on she uh, lays out a suit for somebody she sort of pet- feeds the dog she's in this really really beautiful gown it's Elmodovar so all of the design is there to kind of assault you a little bit like (laughs) just the the sort of loud angry colors uh i I really wish i could have wallpaper like he has invented in his movies uh but she eventually gets a phone call and we realize through her conversation that she's talking to uh an old lover of hers and that things have ended very badly and that's what's sort of eaten away at her from the inside Hmm. uh it's just her there's other actors there's like some people who sort of drift in the periphery but it's mostly just tilda swinton uh, and, uh, and, and it's in English. She's speaking in English. Uh, it's a powerhouse. It is pure theatricality. Uh, I appreciate films that have the boldness to be theatrical like this. And, uh, Almodovar's films do tend to be, uh, quite melodramatic. No. Uh, a little bit, if you've noticed, okay. if you've seen a couple of them. I guess I should. Uh, even, you know, he has uh, some light comedies. He also has some pretty heady uh, dramas. But they tend to swing for the walls. They have these operatic moments of, of like, soap opera-like emotions. Uh, and here he's actually, because it's a short, maybe, he seems to be underplaying it a little bit. Or maybe it's because he cast an actress like Tilda Swinton. Hmm who's actually incredibly good when she's being understated. She can be, don't go over the top as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's played some very silly roles in her in her career, but here she's playing a little bit more, like, closer to the chest and much more authentic. So we're actually sort of dwelling within this artificial space with her a little bit more intimately than we would otherwise. Uh, it, it has this sort of theatrical facade, but once we're inside that facade, we realize that the theater is not meant as a distancing maneuver, but it's something to sort of draw us in. It's kind of like this beating heart in the middle of an empty chest. And we're, uh, we're just sort of pumping through it with Tilda Swinton. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's a setup, there's a speech, there's a payoff. It is only a short. It is only 30 minutes long. Uh, so there's not going to be a lot of complications. But it does everything it needs to. And um, it doesn't feel like like a, a shortened feature where there's like a lot of rising and falling action and there's a lot of different interactions of characters. It feels like a short. It is a one act play. Uh, but good boy, how do you, it's a good one act play. <laughs> uh, well, it's a short I film, feel, but it doesn't yeah, have to follow it, the, these rules yeah. that we like, 
we associate mm. with movies have to be all these things. Shorts mm. have a very different set of rules and they're also a very malleable set of rules. Yeah. They can be anything, mm. you know? I admire that. I think the short, um, the short medium is a really exciting place to be. Yeah. And I wish we... I wish it got more traction, which is weird because we watch short films all the time. Mm. We watch TikToks all the time, commercials. We watch uh, uh, videos that people make on YouTube. For some reason, we don't call it cinema all the time. We should. Yeah. It's exciting. Well, yeah. I'm mad that I missed this. Well, it, it's still on HBO. I mean, I'll it's see th- it. It's 30 I just, minutes. Yeah, I wanted to. Just, I would have wanted to talk please, about. Please it. seek this out because this is yeah. you know one of cinema's current masters. Yeah. Uh, even if he's just sort of playing around, you know, was interested in the works of Jean Cocteau. Uh, Cocteau and Almodovar are similar in a lot of ways, but they're incredibly different in a lot of ways, too. Mm. Um, you know, they're both uh, theatrical queer artists who are very interested in uh, big stories, but Almodovar is working on a very uh, humane level that deals with a lot of... Uh, big sort of relatable emotions and things that sort of relate to his own life. Whereas Cocteau was much more abstract. He liked to deal with poetry and yeah. you, you know, a lot of his films are very surreal. Uh, so uh, they are an interesting pair and I think it works really well with the human voice. All right. Well, I'm always interested when one of my favorite filmmakers just sort of unexpectedly has a new short, like, um, what did Jack do? Showed up one day completely unexpectedly on Netflix. And that's what the one where David Lynch has a conversation with a talking cappuccino monkey in a diner. Uh, and it just sort of showed up unexpectedly. And boy, how damn glad it did. And I think it might still be on Netflix. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I'd have to check. Okay, noted. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's go through the new releases one last time. Let's do a review roundup, if you will. And uh, review them on the critically acclaimed scale. Now, if you're new... Or you might need a refresher. Uh, we review films on a scale of C minus to C plus. That way, we will never get on a poster. Uh, we review films. Uh, most films are a C. C is average. You know, you've been to school. C is average. Hmm. C plus is above average. Anything that's above average, anything that we just we recommend it, might be the best movie ever made. Might just be quite good. That's a C plus, and C minus is below average. It's either the worst thing ever, or we just don't recommend it, or anything in between. just want to give everyone a general sense of where we stand. So, uh, Whitney, where do you stand on the human voice? Uh, it's, it's a C+. Plus. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great little film. All right. Uh, where do you stand on Tom Clancy is without remorse? Uh, that is a C-. Minus. I hated it. <laughs> I don't know if I hated it, but I can't remember the last time like a movie like that was so specifically designed to get my blood pumping made my blood go inert. Like, <laughs> like I just, my heart stopped beating. I, yeah, kind of like, you know, like it was like, ah, oh, I was gripping the edge of my seats and it was me just like avoiding the edge of my seats. This is more interesting than the film. Um, yeah, it's not a good film. It's very generic, very frustrating. Um, I've seen worse. It didn't like piss me off the way it pissed off uh, Whitney. But if anything, that's almost to the film's detriment because it didn't even evoke that kind of response. Mm. So, yeah, very disappointing. Uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz. Uh, it's a C. Mm. Uh, I, I, I really wish it had done more. Like, it clearly had a lot on its mind. It was clearly trying to do something really, really big. But a lot of it was just cliched and uh, just sort sort of dull and, and well-trodden. To the point where it wasn't so interesting for a good long portion of it. And if you're going to have me watch this story for three hours, 
you can use that time to stretch and do something a little bit more interesting than what you did. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a failure, so I'll give it a C. Uh, and then finally, on the uh, critically acclaimed scale, C, C- minus to C+. Plus. Mm. The Mitchells and the Machines, I am very tempted to give this like an A-. minus. <laughs> like, I li- really, really love this movie it's, a lot. It's really quite good. I give yeah. it a C+. Plus. It's definitely a C+. Plus. It's a great. It's a great movie. It's great. It's exciting filmmaking Mm. uh, where it just feels like seriously, like everyone involved put their absolute every effort into making every part of it work. And all my complaints are just, I wanted more of it. All my complaints are I wanted more of this thing Mm. and a movie can only do so much. And this movie does more than most movies. (laughs) I really am just super fond of it. I'm definitely, definitely going to keep this one like, in my uh, in my lexicon in my mm. rotation, I'm going to remember this one for a long time. So do not miss it. And then uh, there's not a lot of corollary between the Mitchells versus the Machines and the Devils. <laughs> well, I see. If Ken Russell had ever made an animated film, hmm. it would actually be nothing like the Mitchells versus the Machines. I think that's probably true. Although that would be fascinating. Uh, Ken Russell. Oh boy, Ken Russell! Woo! <laughs> Yeehaw, Ken Russell! So we asked uh, we asked our patrons to vote for a film on Shutter for us to review, and mm. unfortunately, one of the films that we put on there, I mean, made a note on the poll as a warning to everybody. Unfortunately, one of the films, uh, and that's the one you picked, The Devils, uh, was leaving the service, so it's not available there anymore. And unfortunately, it's not streaming anywhere else right now, mm. which I discovered a little too late. Um, I had seen this one before; mm. Whitney hadn't. Uh, but I've seen this movie a couple of times before. I'm a big, big fan of it. Uh, and I thought it wasn't a big deal that I didn't see it on Shutter in time because I could have sworn I had it on DVD. I don't know where the fuck that thing is, and I'm mad about that. So well, so I'm not is... coming off of this very fresh, but Whitney yeah. is. And so just the f- full heads up, my memory of this might not be as lucid as it would be if I had seen it yesterday. Okay. So, but I do remember it quite well, and I'm a I'm a huge fan. So, tell people about Ken Russell. Uh, Ken Russell is, I guess, like an art house bad boy uh, from <laughs> from like the the 70s. I guess all the way through the 90s uh, was sort of his his most active period. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made all kinds of wacky, weird movies. Uh, the The Devils was sort of like his his big explosion into the public eye. Mm. He previously did Women in Love uh, before The Devils. He then uh, what he did the he did the spy do. film Billion Dollar Brain, which is mm-hmm. like a, a British Bond series starring Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah uh, he would go on to do uh, the film version of Tommy, the Who's Tommy, mm-hmm. uh, which is well. Just wait until you see Anne Margaret rolling around in a sea of baked beans. Uh, <laughs> uh, he uh, he had a modest success in science fiction with a film called Altered States about mm-hmm. somebody who uses sensory deprivation to de-evolve. Yeah. Uh, he told in the mid eighties, he made a film called Gothic, which is about the nights that, uh, uh, Sherry, Mary, Wol- Mary Wollstonecraft, Lord Byron, uh, all got together, took a bunch of drugs and wrote horror stories, but a lot of the don't, horrors were real. Uh, don't forget Polidori. On Paul, yeah, Paul, Paul Dory wrote like the quintessential like early yeah. vampire novel. Um, uh, he, he did a, a, a horror film in the late '80s that I'm very fond of called "The Lair of the White Worm," which is awesome. His, which is is just so great. It's based on a book by uh, uh, Bram Stoker, but it's just it's it's just weird, and great, and these weird snake people are in super it. lurid cult yeah, movie. He, it's really great, he really, and he was pushing out onto the edge really like all throughout his career. Um, in in uh, 1991, he made a film called Horror which caused, mm. caused quite a stir at the time. 
Uh, and he isn't talked about a lot anymore. I think just because it was outstripped by um, mm. by its reputation. Like he was trying to get people to be titillated and mm. yeah, just, okay, titillated. And now we've sort of moved past that. But uh, yeah, he really kind of made a splash back in 1971 with a film called The Devils, which is based uh, on a nonfiction book written by Aldous Huxley, which partly tells the true story of a priest who uh, in, I think it was the, 17th century. Yeah, it was like um, it's like the late 1600s. Was uh, burned at the stake for witchcraft. Yeah. Uh, by Cardinal Richelieu, and the town that he was living in was reported to have this gigantic out uh, outbreak of satanic sexuality from all of the nuns. And so uh, Cardinal Richelieu went in there and said, clearly this is all Satan's work. Satan has possessed everybody. Mm. You're all possessed. And uh, we can exercise, we can send some priests in, we can exercise you. And if that doesn't work, we're going to burn you at the stake. Um, in this movie, uh, Cardinal Richelieu is, is a character and he is trying to take over uh, this little town. Uh, Cardinal Richelieu and Louis the... Louis the number. <laughs> Louis, Louis the 13th. I just looked there it up. Uh, Cardinal Richelieu and Louis the 13th uh, were conspiring to essentially take over the world, more or less. Yeah. Uh, this was when uh, the Catholic Church was essentially a world power unto itself and was influencing governments mm. very directly. However, there was one town mm. that was those, considered those, like completely off limits. It, it's it's like it was like Asterix comics. There's this mm. one Gaulish village that's holding yeah. off all of the Roman hordes. Yeah, uh, uh, this one town called Ludun uh, was uh, not being uh, was not occupied. Yeah, and the local priest was who was being sent there, and uh, the local priest is played by Oliver Reed yeah. as the sexiest man imaginable. Uh, so he's Oliver Reed. So, yeah, well, yeah. he's he's Oliver Reed, and yeah. uh, Oliver Reed has some incredibly uh, progressive and liberal views about sexuality and marriage in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. A, people should be allowed to marry. B, sex is not a sin. C, sleep around all you like, mm-hmm. just do it responsibly. In fact, he himself is sleeping around, yeah, he's which sli- he's not supposed to be doing. He's sleeping around, but there's he's completely confident and open about what he's doing, and he wants to marry, which indeed he does over the course of this movie. He gets married. Problem is, is that the, I think she's she the mother superior, she's just a nun. Th- she's just a nun. Yeah. A, a Vanessa, nun played by Vanessa Redgrave. Vanessa Redgrave is deeply in lust with mm. Urban Grandier, the priest mm. played by Oliver Reed. And when she finds out that not only is he fucking around, but he re- isn't fucking around with her, mm. it pushes her to the brink and it basically leads her to incite a sexual mania mm. amongst her and all the other nuns because fuck it, why not? Yeah, like, she, she starts pushing people and then... Uh, the uh, toady that Cardinal Richelieu sends in this like little Weasley guy in spectacles uh, starts saying you're all possessed and he starts kind of whipping them into a greater frenzy and he ends up yelling at them saying you're all possessed and if you're all possessed you're not responsible for what you do and all of the nuns immediately rip their clothes off and just start going ab- yeah. about this 24 hour sex sexual orgy. repression yeah. has just all of a sudden been released like a mm. fire hose and it leads to an incredibly controversial orgy sequence which is really sacrilegious it's oh golly and by is design it ever. yeah no by yeah. design in fact yeah. um this is not just Ken Russell being like campy and fun and is, wouldn't it be fun to have nun, nuns having an orgy and that naughty sort of 1970s 
we can, we can almost get away with doing porno in a mainstream film kind of way, <laughs> uh, which was what was actually kind of going on at the time. Like the, the success of Deep Throat actually brought hardcore sex into sort of the, the mainstream very briefly, where a lot of uh, filmmakers were talking about, well, maybe we could do films with hardcore sex and have it be art. And sadly, it never really sort of took off in any kind of meaningful way. It was just part of the conversation for a, for a, like a, a brief moment. But yeah, th- this wasn't just uh, Ken Russell being prurient. It wasn't him being campy. He was actually making a very salient political points about how government and specifically the Catholic faith uh, uses this l- centuries-long network of sexual repression mm. to influence and take over land. Yeah. Like, that's that's their tool. And he is trying to point out the hypocrisy of that. Mm-hmm the uselessness of that and how letting priests marry essentially is the cure for all of this. Yeah. The, uh, somebody actually, a listener actually brought this up to me recently. I, uh, had assumed, cause I'm not Catholic, so I don't, I don't know a lot of the ins and outs of the Catholic faith. I've just sort of heard it from hearsay, uh, that the reason why priests didn't marry was because, uh, in my mind, it was because the, uh, devotion to the faith was so important that you shouldn't be distracted by outside relationships. Okay. Your central relationship is going to be with God and Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out that there was actually also a political reason for this, because if you marry, you are a landowner. And if you own land, that's something that the church doesn't have, is it? So they, mm. they wanted to make, keep priests from owning land, essentially, so they could have it themselves. Yeah, there's no transfer was, of property yeah. from parent to child. The, yeah. the Catholic Church was in this massive centuries-long land grab scheme. That was all uh, centered around these kinds of uh, network of, of lies, repression, and and false exorcisms to keep people afraid just so they could take over more and more towns. Yeah. Ken- uh, and that is what Ken Russell is getting at. Yeah. That is what Aldous Huxley was getting at in the original novel uh, book he wrote. And uh, it's... Uh, it's, a, it's an exhilarating watch. Yeah, uh, this movie was heavily censored. I'm actually not sure which version Shudder had. Probably the censored uh, version. I, I know there's a notorious scene at the end that was cut from the Shudder. Okay, so there. But I'm not. I'm not sure I've even seen that scene. But um, I feel like The Devils is maybe the. I mean, I haven't seen every Ken Russell movie, but of the Ken Russell movies I've seen, and I've loved most of the ones that I've seen. Mm. I feel like this is like the greatest Ken Russell movie because this is the one where. All of his predilections, all of his kinks, all of his um, mm. sometimes very childish lashing outs mm. uh, are completely weaponized and actually in service of a truly great story. Uh, this feels like a classic biblical tale, but it happens to be told in defiance of the Bible. Mm. And I think that's fascinating. I think it has all of that great, that that fall from grace, that martyrdom, mm. uh, the incredibly lurid Old Testament qualities to it. Um, but he's flipping all of that around and using all of like the the iconography and all of the filmmaking techniques that we would associate with a biblical epic in order to tell a story that is actually deeply critical of, at the very least, the organization of religion. Mm. The idea that whatever religion you may believe in, uh, once it starts becoming bureaucratic and self, like, starts protecting itself as a bureaucracy, it loses loses its way and it no longer is something that we can look up to. Mm. I'm not convinced that Ken Russell has any finer thoughts about how religion is beautiful if you remove the dogma. 
I would be surprised if that was the case. I would be surprised if if he had any kind of religious thoughts at all. I realize that. In fact, what he's made here is uh, a satire on the level of the Marquis de Sade. Yeah. Uh, the Marquis, I'm not sure if you've read the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> I've <familiar>. tried. <laughs> He's not it's, a great author. No, Maybe in the original really rough, French it's a little better, but man, he is not. It, it, he's much more interesting to talk about than he is to read. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the Marquis de Sade, uh, one, of the, one of his uh, underlying ethos is was he was defying a god. He, he Brazenly atheist was, yeah. and was defying God to punish him. So yeah. I'm going to do is like the most, the evilest, most sacrilegious things I can think of. It's like, and you like, he'd climb up to a, a crucifix and just start n- hammering nails into Christ's face on a crucifix and saying, if, if this is sacrilegious, stop me. Nope. Nope. You're not gonna, yeah. I'm just going to keep on doing this. Yeah. Then he is, died. Is it, then he it, died sad and alone in a mental institution. Tor- tortured and cut apart and yeah, yeah. He, he, he didn't come so maybe well. maybe maybe uh, he pushed it a little far yeah. as I'll say maybe it wasn't Gee, just gosh. a lightning bolt I, I wish God would stop me why are all these priests imprisoning me <laughs> <laughs> maybe make a connection there uh, again I don't but, think he was a great dramatist I think he would have made the connection if yeah. he but but Ken Russell is making that connection, and he is he is pointing out a lot of the hypocrisy of, of organized religion and how this great, yeah, horrible, massive paperwork has completely o- overtaken anything natural and good about humankind. Yeah, the uh, the Oliver Reed character is a good guy. Yeah. he actually is not instigating any kind of evils. He is, you know kind of teasy-weezy a little bit. Like, he, he mistreats... Uh, like, he doesn't... One of his par- sexual partners, he doesn't treat very well. He doesn't, like, right. abuse her or anything, but he's kind of he's, brusque. He, he's, uh, he's he's sleeping around. He's a bit yeah. of a dick. But he's not he's, he's wicked. A, he, yeah, he's a bit of a cad. But, yeah, he's not lording it over anybody. In fact, he's very well-spoken about yeah. how being sexually open is okay. It's part of being yeah. a human. And in the end, he's martyred because he has principles. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he yeah. refuses to confess to something he didn't do. And, uh, and yeah, we get to see, and that frustrating thing, it's like, no, just, you don't have to do, no, just, you don't have to do, do it, just no let one him cares. go. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and because he's Oliver Reed, uh, you kind of buy why yeah. nuns would explode into an orgy when he walks into the room. I would. Mm. <laughs> this era, Oliver Reed, hell yeah. <laughs> Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed is also in Tommy. Oliver Reed, Oliver Reed, I wonder, I, I want to make sure that like some of our younger listeners understand Oliver Reed, because you may remember him from some of his later roles and things like Gladiator. His last movie, uh, he died while making yeah. it, and um, they're able to cut it together pretty well without him. Um, Oliver Reed was one of the coolest motherfucking actors. By all rights, apparently sometimes kind of a dick. He was certainly a heavy drinker, um, but uh, and there's plenty. If, if almost everyone who ever worked with him has some kind of funny Oliver Reed story mm. in which he was being kind of a dick. Uh, yeah, but you, you, you watch him in all in uh, Gladiator, mm-hmm. and uh, it's like, oh gosh, he, he looks. He look, how old was he in, when he made this movie? Like eighty five. He was sixty when he made that movie. Yeah, he lived, he lived hard. hard. He lived really, 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 really hard. But there was an absolute animal magnetism mm-hmm. to Oliver Reed, and especially in his early roles. But I think everything through like the eighties, at least, where he's just. Ab- I mean, he's not even like. 
He's not conventional, like supermodel attractive. He's just hmm. he's he's got like that uh, Tom the... Hardy attractiveness. Yeah, like he's kind of like strong and squat. That Tom Hardy is the vibe. Tom mm. Hardy is the vibe I'm going for here. Well, where you give him a, also in terms of an actor, if you give him a good role, he will be the best actor in the world. Mm. You give him a bad role, he will be the most interesting actor in the world. <laughs> he will never fall, He will give you everything mm. he's got, no matter how much booze it takes, and. I, I don't mean to minimize that. I, I he, he really shouldn't have drank so much. That's bad. But um, he yeah, yeah. was an absolutely captivating screen presence. And if you haven't seen some of his earlier stuff, I highly recommend you yeah, check it um, out because he's gorgeous. Really uh, great. As an actor. He, I mean, he, like he was in person. Oliver, the musical Oliver. Yeah, he, he, was he played Bill, Bill Sykes. Sykes. Yeah, uh, great, great role. Yeah. He's amazing in it. Uh, yeah, just look look over his whole filmography because yeah. he did like dozens and dozens. He was of he was in uh, Richard Lester's uh, uh, the Four three, Musketeers. Well, the Three Musketeers. The, what happened was yeah. they filmed the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers back to back. Right, he was he was one of the Musketeers. Yeah, he was um, uh, Athos, Athos. Um, he, the tragic one, and um, he uh, yeah, those films were filmed back to back. I think the original idea was that it was going to be released as one giant four hour epic, but they decided to split them up, hmm. or maybe there was already a plan to split them up. But in any case, yeah. Incredible cast, amazing sword fights. The Four Musketeers is okay. The Three Musketeers with Oliver Reed and um, uh, Michael York mm. and Christopher Lee. That movie is a wonderful action epic. That movie is great. No, I, I haven't seen it. It's so good. I yeah, love that Richard movie. Lester. I think Charlton Heston plays Cardinal Richelieu. It's fantastic. Um. Yeah. Seriously. Check if you. If, I, I see both, but the second one isn't as good as the first. First oh, one's great. And, oh no! Who plays Milady? Somebody notable plays Milady. Oh, it was uh, Faye Dunaway. Faye, that's right. Faye Dunaway. Yeah, it was Faye Dunaway. It was uh, Richard Chamberlain, and I forget who mm. plays Porthos. I think a French actor. I think it might have actually been a French actor. But anyway, <laughs> um. In any case, wonderful movie. It's easily the best Three Musketeers we've ever had. Yeah. This. This is. Uh, but the Devils is Oliver Reed at his like. Readiest, uh, he's, <laughs> just it, it's just a really great performance, and yeah. uh, everything I'd heard about the Devils was that it, I heard it compared to movies like Caligula. Caligula is a, a piece of trash. I've never like gotten through Caligula. Yeah, it, like it's difficult to sit through it. I mean, I I I recommend it if you're into like sick cult shit, like I am. But uh, yeah, it's a uh, rite of passage. Yeah, it's like an. I, I remember them making jokes about it on Mystery Science Theory. It's like look out for the orgy scene in Caligula. It's just orgy scenes. That's all Caligula is. Well, there's that, isn't uh, there one like weird like head chopping sequence with some weird like giant a, mechanical there's device? Sequ- there's a sequence where a, like a field of people like there's dozens of people buried up to their necks, and there's this gigantic field long like lawnmower thing that's yeah just sort of like shaving off their heads as it goes along, which I feel is probably a little anachronistic. A little anachronistic, inefficient too. Yeah, just like a you bad have to build to this it. gigantic machine. Yeah. You have to spend all the time like. Yeah. Digging the holes and putting people in there. Just use a guillotine. Yeah. Of course, it hadn't been invented yet. It's ancient Rome. Well, the premise was pretty straightforward. You could have done it. <laughs> I'm more I'm more willing to believe that they would come up with something similar to a guillotine and forget to patent it than they would come up with a giant fucking field lawnmower in like 50 AD. I'm sorry, AD 50. Or whenever the fuck Caligula ruled. I forget what year. <clears throat> anyway. The Devils. <laughs> the, the Devils uh, The devils is my boo. Yeah. I, I so dig The Devils. This is like, 
it, it, this is like right up my alley. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked that I hadn't seen it before. This seems like the kind of, kind of thing that I would really, really dig and uh, should have seen earlier. And I yeah. finally got around to it. It wasn't widely available. It was at my local video store. I just never got around to it. It, it was completely unavailable uh, but, in America. Like hadn't been released on like yeah. home video for a long ass time. You could only get it in like bootlegs. And then yeah, I, I remember it, my local video store like yeah. had one. It had like a Xerox uh, cover. There had been like multiple attempts to like put together like this new because the movie had been censored out the wazoo. There's yeah. so much that had been cut out of it. Um, but like there had been attempts to like sort of incorporate the old footage back in remaster it but it's still so controversial that like a lot of the the studios involved weren't super interested in it and then at some point in the last 10 years someone just threw it onto streaming kind of unceremoniously if memory serves Mm. it's like by the way it's on streaming i'm like what so i ran to see it uh and uh yeah every once in a while pops up again it was on shutter for a while it got taken off of shutter then it was on shutter for a while sadly now it is gone and i hate to like takes such a long time to recommend something that you might not be able to see right now. On the other hand, how will you know to get excited about it when it becomes available if we stop about talking? About yeah. yeah, you can't, like, I've, I've had this conversation with some other people where it's like, it, is it really fair to, like, go out of your way to talk about and recommend films that are currently unavailable? And I think it's fair to the films. Absolutely. I think that's the important thing right now. And if this feels like a bit of a tease... Because it's difficult to get a hold of the film. I am sorry about that. But the problem lies with the people who are making these things unavailable. And if you know now that The Devil seems like something you want to see. And if it's not something you want to see. I totally get it. It is brusque in your face. Sacrilegious. It's with a point. But regardless if that's not your taste. Fair. Uh, But if that sounds like something you want to see. Raise your fist. (laughs) All right, talk about it on social media. The more these things, more people know that there's a more audience for it, the more you'll get them. That's all there is to it. Anyway, that is it for the critically acclaimed streaming club. We'll be back next week uh, with another film decided via our patrons. Uh, if you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, we have a poll every week, or if we miss a critically acclaimed every other week, but um, where you can decide what film we're going to watch next week, in addition to whatever new releases there are. Uh, Next week, we are going to be picking an action movie on Hulu. Because. Anyway. Because that's what we chose. The options include uh, the Anthony Mann uh, Western epic The Furies from 1950. Uh, The Keenan Ivory Wayne's action movie A Low Down Dirty Shame. I saw that in theaters. Uh, The Takeshi Miike uh, epic 13 Assassins, a samurai film from 2010. And last year's Money Plane, starring Kelsey Grammer. As Darius Emanuel Grouch III, also known as The Rumble. It's The Rumble that makes it hilarious. Uh, And he he hires a guy (laughs) to rob a casino in the sky. He hires an ex-wrestler to to go into a, a... Casino in the sky that is overseen by like the world's worst criminals. So they're all bad guys. Yeah. He has to rob the plane. I have I have you heard want, you want to bet on all kinds of weird stuff? Money plane. I've heard great things about Thirteen Assassins. Mm-hmm. I've heard mixed things about a lowdown dirty shame, but I mostly trust the people who like it. Like mm-hmm. that's people who taste rally with my own. I've never seen the Furies, I've heard it's really, really good. I've only heard two things about Money Plane. It's unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> or 
it's the best cult movie of the last couple of years. Um, I've seen it. Oh my! Uh, and it, it's well, I'll, well, I'll save my feelings for about it. Well, uh, the, if, if we ever get to review it, but um, yeah. yeah, it's it's. Uh, do you it's think filmed... I, do you think I'm going to have a good time, or do you think people are going to have a good time hearing me suffer? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Oh, that's a it, great it, recommendation. It can, it, can, it, can, it can ride the line. Kelsey Grammer gives a performance <laughs> as Darius Darius Emmanuel Grouch the Third, aka the Rumble. I'm sorry, the Rumble. And you, know, Kelsey Grammer is if whatever you think about him as a as a human being, one of his great talents is making completely ridiculous dialogue sound fun and natural. Yeah. That that's something he's always been good at. You know, he he played the Beast in one of the X Men films. For sure goodness' sake, uh, he has trouble with money planes style. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, listen, so, I'm probably gonna watch it regardless yeah. at some point. But if it does, if it doesn't win, but if it does win, we'll talk about it next mm. week. Anyway, that is it for critically acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. A very special thank you to all of our patrons who vote for the streaming club, but also get a lot of other. Exclusive shows over at our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, you get exclusive shows about Star Trek, Batman, Disney. We do commentary tracks, Academy Awards uh, uh, podcasts. Um, it's a lot. Mm. We, we try to make sure that you're getting uh, uh, something for your money. Uh, it's not just like one extra show. We try to make sure you get a lot. Um, and still, we don't feel like we're doing enough. So... Anyway, uh, but uh, all that's there. You can also uh, follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to email us, our email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to talk about anything we discussed on this podcast, uh, d- d- debate a review, correct us if we got something wrong, ask us questions about the industry, ask us for recommendations, recommend stuff to us and our listeners, whatever you want to talk about, we might read your email in an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail, mm-hmm. which is right here at the uh, Critically Claim Network. That podcast, like many others, is free. You don't have to be a patron for it. Uh, and um, also, soap. <laughs> we know you like soap. I like soap. Who doesn't like soap? We make soap. Uh, uh, or rather, I and my partner and wife, uh, M. Lapis de Silva, do. Uh, we have Salt Cat Soap. It is an Etsy store right now. Uh, Salt Cat Soap is all one word, and we offer a line of handcrafted soaps. Uh, we're also starting to venture off into uh, related soap products. We just introduced uh, our first uh, lotion, which is very, very nice. It also features a nice new logo featuring uh, our cat, Luca. Uh, we also have a new uh, uh, offering of bath salts, uh, where you take a couple of spoonfuls, dump them into bath with you. It just makes it all nice, smells nice, it's good mm. for your skin. Um, all of those things are currently available at our Etsy store, along with new Luca stickers. Uh, so please head on over to Etsy and look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. You can also follow Salt Cat Soap on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, hey, Mother's Day is coming up. It's not too late. We might be able to get it to you in time. Father's Day is coming up. People like soap. But thank you especially everybody who's already uh, purchased. We just really appreciate your business. And uh, the reviews have been really, really great so far. And that means a lot to us. So thank you. Uh, and uh, that's about that. Indeed. Anyway, never forget. Everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? 
A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time, from an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.